You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Matt Dees. Matt is the winemaker for Hanada, The Hilt, and The Pairing. Today, we'll be talking about The Hilt's Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from Santa Barbara County. Enjoy my conversation with Matt Dees. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great having you. So I think the first thing is I'm here in Los Angeles and we have pretty clear weather, pretty sunny skies, even though it's a little bit cooler for us, how is the weather up in Santa Barbara? <laughs> you know what? I mean, like it is every day. You know, you wake up and you're like, oh man, it's going to be anywhere from 68 to 74, and it's going to be beautiful at night. It's so funny, you know, coming from Kansas City, this place is a climatic heaven. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it's been a little bit dry this winter, but all things considered, it's been a stunning Santa Barbara winter as always. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, in California, generally, I guess when the temperature dips down to the 50s or somewhere around there, people put on big parkas and big jackets. <laughs> people who are just maybe grew up here in the area who uh, they're not familiar with some of the really cold temperatures are used to it. So it's always funny to see that. Um, so you mentioned Kansas City. Let's get a little bit into your background. Take us back to, you know, how you grew up and we can kind of lead up into the winemaking and the exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I think when one thinks about, you know, fine wine, <laughs> think of a city and fine wine. Kansas City is not often the city that comes to mind, you know, albeit up until pro- uh, Prohibition, we were making a little bit of wine there, but not a lot. Um, and I grew up not even really drinking wine. I would, you know, drink whatever, you know, Midwestern high schoolers were drinking back then, whatever we could get our hands on. I think that even included Zima, right? I mean, I was not drinking fine uh, Burgundy at that point in my life. But since I was a little kid, I had this just this odd infatuation with dirt and with bugs and with uh, with plants. Plants just made more sense to me. I, 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 I joke around saying that I was in, you know, playing right field and the ball would go sailing over my head because I was looking at dandelions. But it's really kind of how it was. And no idea that I would get into winemaking one day, but I knew that I had some odd connection with the dirt. Yeah, and you studied plant and soil science in Vermont. Talk a little about that for people who don't know what it is, and for me too, because it's something new uh, that I was learning about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I got to the University of Vermont, I, I thought I wanted to work with trees my whole life. I thought forestry would be kind of my golden ticket into the natural world. And I learned pretty quickly that if you really want to get into forestry and, and you've got a living, you know, a lot of times you have to go to the dark side. <laughs> you have to learn how to manage vineyard or manage uh, forests by chopping them down. And in my idealistic early college days, that wasn't going to fly. So I swapped over to the plant and soil science department, which at University of Vermont at that time was tiny. Uh, it was run by these just shockingly brilliant professors. Uh, It was really an open-minded approach to soil. It was very progressive in the sense that that we covered everything, right? We we were really focused on on a sustainable approach to soil management. And, you know, it involved a lot of soil chemistry, a lot of hydrology, a lot of 
plant pathology, plant physiology, just kind of touching all the bases, right? Uh, covering all the bases of, of anything you might get into in an agricultural system. And I worked with people like Mark Sterrett and, and uh, Wendy Sue Harper and these just minds that were, were so advanced and, and still are. And, and I was really blessed to be in a system like that. Needless to say, at the time, viticulture wasn't really a strong suit of the university. It's, it's still not, though it's growing. But uh, I did spend a number of years making wine in that, that stunningly beautiful and icily cold state. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your winemaking journey and also touch on, you know, the role of a winemaker of working with the vineyard management team and maybe why you chose to go down the path of winemaking, although you're still, I know, really involved in the vineyard management side and the, the farming side, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I learned from um, a gentleman up in Vermont, a gentleman named Ken Albert, who runs, um, still runs this amazing winery, a small production called Shelburne Vineyards. And I was blessed, right? I mean, the gentleman called UVM, he called my advisor after the end of a freshman semester. And he said, look, I'm, I'm looking for a kid who didn't fail out of his freshman semester. Um, and that was Groovy UV in the high times. And I was one of a handful that made it. <laughs> and, you know, he was also looking for someone who had a stronger back than he had. And at the time, Ken was probably 65 and I was 18. So I had him there, you know, so I kind of fell almost backwards into viticulture. And I learned at a site that was, I mean, we talk about marginal vineyards. Vermont is a marginal region for, for vines. I mean, it, you're on the precipice. You know, we had to bury the vines by hand to protect the canes through the winter because it gets to Lord. I mean, it gets down to negative 40. I've seen it up there. Um, you know, you, you can grow only a little bit of vinifera. You're mainly dealing with hybrids. It's, it's backbreaking work. Um, and I learned about it in an environment that was not sexy. It was not romantic. It was a, a, a kind of clawing our way through an agricultural endeavor. It was, a, it was absolutely driven by passion. And so I was blessed in that, right? It, I didn't, started some property that was like a walk in the clouds. I think a Keanu Reeves movie or whatever it is. You know, I started in a place where, you know, frostbite was a problem. <laughs> so Yeah, was, and, and what varietals were you making there? Oh, God, we, we did everything. Uh, I was most excited about the Constantine Frank Riesling clones mm -hmm. that looking back, you know, I'm not even sure what they were. Uh, but we made some amazing wines with those. I was really taken with a couple of grapes like Vignol, um, Seval Blanc, uh, what else? Chardonnay was up there. Tremonette. Um, we worked with Zweigelt, you know, that, that really racy, uh, occasionally tart uh, Austrian red. We started to play with Minnesota grapes, like St. Croix and things like that. I think it's actually St. Croix in Minnesota. Uh, and it's just, a, just a little bit of everything and made some ice wine, made some wines that I've since tasted people blind on these ice wines from Vermont and with a tasting group of some pretty talented, you know, experienced palates and people have come up with like SGNs from Alsace, you know, and I just, it makes me very proud uh, to have been a part of that. But, you know, one day came and, you know, I'm, I'm a junior up there in, in Vermont and I hit a, uh, basically a pickaxe into the soil, trying to clear the soil. And it was basically permafrost and it was maybe negative 20 out and it was snowing and I had nine layers on and I, kind of had this moment where I thought maybe I could make wine somewhere less daunting, <laughs> you know, where, right. where the sun comes out and your eyeballs don't freeze open and your nostrils don't freeze closed. Right. And, and, but I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade my mentorship with Ken. I wouldn't trade learning about the industry from a, a really difficult angle. And that ama amazing experience made me really want to learn winemaking on the job. I wanted to learn to sit, sit at people's feet who I loved and respected and, and who I wanted to, to kind of become a mentor of. And I sat at the feet of some really talented, amazing people all over the world. And as much as I love Davis and I love, you know, Cal Poly and Fresno, all these amazing schools here in the U.S., Cornell, I really just made a decision at that point that I wanted to learn this, this craft on the job. I wanted to make my ideas from watching other people and from, from experiencing my own kind of winemaking career firsthand. Yeah, and let's talk about, you know, tell the story about how you ended up at Staglin Family in Napa um, after working there in Vermont. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I was a college kid at the time without a couple pennies to my name. Like I had, I had made a fake ID so I could manage a wine bar. You know, like I, I was I was bit by the bug and I was scrapping and 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 trying to to live the you know college kid existence. But that didn't necessarily allow me to taste um, world class wines all the time on a regular basis. It was mainly uh, you know cheap light beer out of uh, a red cup. Uh, but my brother lived in Manhattan at the time, and I would travel down there maybe once or twice a month. And he lived uh, the life of a banker, slightly more glamorous and sexy than my life at the time. And he took me to Sherry Lehman one time and, and kind of like unleashed me. He's like, you know, go grab, grab me three bottles that you really want to try and let, let's crush them. And I bought a 1976 Tokai uh, Azencia, Azu Azencia, actually. Um, uh, I bought a... 1989 Chateau Sertin de Maida Sertin Pomerol, and about a 1995 Staglin Family Vineyard Cabernet. And those three wines really just crushed me, knocked me off my feet, uh, broadside of me. It was crazy. And kind of piqued my imagination. And the Staglin bottle literally had their phone number on the back, and it was like their home phone number. You know, call us, you know, Garen and Sherry. <laughs> and so That's great. I bought a ticket to Oakland, I remember, uh, after tasting, like literally the next day. And just just was so enthused and just almost like I was obsessed. I wanted to see what Rutherford Dust was all about because that wine was so just impressive and perfect. And she answered the phone. I remember Sherry answered the phone and uh, she was so kind and understanding. And, you know, I was like, I'm probably talking to a crazy person here. Um, but, you know, <laughs> she said, you know, we, we would love to meet with you at some point, but we don't have any jobs. They were still in the process of, of digging their caves, and they were still making the wine at uh, Napa Wine Company. So I kind of, at the end of the conversation, said, you know, the funny thing is, I totally understand where you're coming from, but I bought a ticket, and I'll be there tomorrow. And she laughed and kind of hung up, you know. And I showed up that next day and literally was behind a black Volkswagen as we pulled up uh, uh, through the uh, Bell Oaks and up into their um, up into their driveway. And... The black Volkswagen was, you know, was Andy Erickson, who was starting his career basically at that time, almost at the same exact time. And, you know, on the way out was, you know, I met with Celia Machensky, who talk about meeting two of your heroes um, and sitting down at a table with David Abreu. And Andy was wonderful. He said, you know, you that that crazy kid from Vermont, you know, from Kansas City, who, who has been writing those letters and calling. And I said, I am. And he said, you're out of your mind. How do you want to go, you know, how do you feel about working in the vineyard with David Abreu and Ricardo Villasenor and, and you know, those legendary figures? I said, sure, I'll take what I can get. And that was the beginning. Wow, what an amazing story. And when you were working with Andy, how did that type of relationship and that experience shape your winemaking journey? Because you mentioned, you know, kind of the love of farming and that's how you came into wine. And I know Andy was on the podcast and he talked a lot about kind of the old adage or the cliche that great wine is made in the vineyard, but he really talked about the vineyard uh, kind of coming first and then the winemaking coming second. Is that something that was able to influence your style as well? Absolutely. I mean, I learned so much from Andy um, and Andy. You know, uh, Andy Fafia. Uh, I ran into them in 2000, I think 2001, I guess. Uh, I think Maddie had just been born. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was everything for me. He he was incredibly welcoming, as were the entire Staglin family and their entire team. Made me feel like family there. And Andy, his gift he he kind of shared with me uh, is, is, is so many facets to it. But his approach to the vineyard, absolutely his attachment to the vines, his focus on viticultural quality, um, his, his kind of never sitting back, but being very active in the vines. Uh, his, his other thing, I mean, so many other things he gave me, but he's just an incredibly intelligent human being. And he's very good with people. He's very warm. He's very um, focused. He runs a tight ship. Uh, you know, and the other thing Andy did was, was, he basically introduced me to my other mentor in this world, who was Doug Weiser uh, at Craigie Ranch. And so Andy pays it forward. And Andy is, is such a generous and caring guy, as well as being just a, uh, one of the world's great winemakers, there's no question. Um, it, it would take me, it, it'd take me days to really come up with every single thing I learned from him. It's that, it's that deep. And, you know, it, 
we shared a kind of our relationship was based on that time on really on Cabernet Sauvignon. And, you know, I spent a, a couple of years with him and was at Staglin family for three years. Uh, and that still is my love, you know, Cabernet to me is still something that like, I, I, it really pushes my buttons and I love it. And I feel like I'm on the, on the only person in Santa Barbara wine company or country kind of waving that flag, <laughs> you know, I go right. to wine tastings and, you know, it's like Syrah, Pinot, Pinot, Syrah, Chardonnay. And I love it. And I've learned to adore them. But Cab always holds a really close place to my heart because of Staglin family and Andy um, and uh, the entire, you know, Garen, Sherry, Shannon, everybody. Yeah. And then let's fast forward to getting the job offer in Santa Barbara and Hanada. And I know Andy was part of that. And um, oh, yeah. how you, you know, transition to Hanada and the Hilt and what we're going to be talking about next here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was in Napa in the summer uh, and then the harvest in the fall. And then I would go to New Zealand and work with the late, great Doug Weiser and a brilliant winemaker named Adrian Baker, maybe the greatest New World Riesling producer. Um, and kind of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in 2003 and 04. And at the end of 04, you know, I was single. Um, <laughs> Napa is not a great place to be single, to be fair. At least it wasn't then. It might be now. Uh, and you know, stylistically, I had moved away a little bit from some of the, um, like, the, you know, some of the 03 vintage in Napa, kind of bigger, riper um, style. I love those wines still, but I had moved away stylistically. And in New Zealand, I had seen, you know, under Doug and AB's tutelage, I had seen some really dicey vintages uh, where, you know, it rained for 30 days. It, you know, it, it literally, like, we'd have to wear respirators because the, the spores on the grapes, we tipped them out of the forklift. You know, it, it was wild. And so for me, I was kind of looking for this this world between the two, the kind of three little bears, right? Not too hot, not too cold. We can get ripe. Maybe it doesn't rain 30 days in a row, but we can also keep acid at a, at a freakishly high level. And Andy called me one day. He said, you know, I, I found your head winemaking gig. And I was sitting on the crush pad in the New Zealand sun. And I remember being such a country bumpkin. He said, you know, it's in Santa Barbara. And I said, oh, you know, stop there, man. It's, I haven't really heard of Santa Barbara. Is it nice down there? <laughs> he, he was like, man, you moron. He's like, you don't even deserve the job, you know. And, and they had mercy on my naive soul. And I flew down to Santa Barbara and took over June 1st of 2004 to start making the wines at Honata, uh, the first vintage down here. And Andy really got me this gig and, you know, was was instrumental in, in being a mentor to me for a number of years. Um, and... You know, landing in Santa Barbara, I didn't know it at the time, but, but you know, you fast forward now 17 years, 16 years, and there's nowhere I'd rather be. You know, I, I landed in the exact right place at the exact right time, and a lot of that is luck, and I'm, I'm proud to say a lot of that is really putting myself in a position to be lucky. I've always believed in that. And a lot of that is Andy. A lot of that is the Staglins. A lot of that is people taking a belief in me and having faith in me. But, you know, I, I found a home down here now, and I, I just I couldn't be happier. Yeah. So, and before we talk about this here real fast, you mentioned the tough couple tough vintages in New Zealand. Were you in Napa for the 1998 vintage? No, 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 no. I, I bottled that when I got into town. Okay. That's uh, what I was wondering. Okay. And that, and that vintage is, that vintage is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I, by the way, I mean, I, I buy that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. I, I mean, you still have the alcohols were a little low in some cases. A couple of them got brett because the alcohol was low and a couple of them were green. And I really fell in love with that vintage as an aside. But um, 2000 was the Napa vintage that always challenged me. But I was there in 01, which was magnificent. 02, which for those of, of, of the listeners who haven't had the 02 Staglin family cab, I mean, I had a horse in the race, but honestly, I was like dragging hoses, right? I'm not going to take any, any credit for that. But I'm so honored to have been there because that's one of the best ones I've ever had just period, period, anywhere in the world. That O2 Staglin family, family cab is just a, 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 a game changer. Um, and then I was there in O3. And then I was at Craigie Range in O2, O3, and O4. And O4 was pretty dicey. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, frogs weren't exactly falling from the sky and blood wasn't exactly flowing in the rivers, but it was pretty close. Right. And it was biblically bad. And then I showed up in Santa Barbara and, I mean, we're so spoiled. So spoiled with the climate here. Uh, yeah, no, the other thing you mentioned before we move on was the Rutherford dust. How would how do you describe that to people who are new to wine or 
they're looking for a way to describe it. It's always tough for me. It's something where I know it when I taste it. But mm-hmm. you know, it's something that I think people started talking about in older vintages of BV, right? And and if you taste those old Georgia Latour bottlings, you know, back to the fifties, even earlier, some of those. Um, I've only been lucky enough to taste a couple of those really old wines, but they're herbal um, and they're structurally different, and it's a significant difference. And to me, it's a combination of, and again, I've been removed from that game for quite a while, but, but just remembering, I mean, the, the Staglin still had some really beautiful older vines planted in kind of a, a double V, like a lyre kind of planting. And uh, that, that plantation, that little parcel gave a real minty, pyrazine, dusty quality, um, all the way from the herbaceous quality on the nose to a a sensation of, of, I mean, dust is the easy way. And my mind is, is, is cloudy today, but you know, it, it, it just sticks with you. You finish the wine and it never lacks for fruit without question because it's Napa, but, but it has this extra level of grit and this extra level of really infinitely fine grain tannins. And to me, it's a combination of that dark fruit, that cedar and that, an herbal green edge. And I say that out of respect, not of love, because that's why I love Cab. I love Cab because it has, in addition to that massive, you know, dollop of fruit, it has just such noble structure, but it also has a really green side. And that's what's so exciting. I think without that, it can be really boring. And I think Rutherford captures that perfectly because those wines aren't always black and all about, you know, power and muscle. They're they can be red and herbal and green and finesse and elegant um, and, and impressed with their power with age. But, you know, putting a finger on exactly what is Rutherford dust, it is something you kind of have to taste. It's a frustrating answer, but but I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it can be hard to put into words. Yeah, I think you uh, you actually said it perfectly there. So um, people who haven't tasted it, definitely go out and try it. Uh, most of the listeners probably are quite familiar with it, but I think that's a perfect way of describing it there. So you mentioned Hanada, and we're here to talk about the Hilt as well. We'll, we'll taste through some of the wines, a couple of Pinots and Shards. Um, so right place, right time. Let's first talk a little about the site and the AVA, you know, Santa Rita Hills and kind of what it's known for. You mentioned, you know, Pinot comes to mind for me, Syrah, obviously, but also, you know, Chardonnay as well. And, and even cab and other and, and other varietals too. Yeah, you know, you have to see, you have to experience uh, Santa Barbara wine country, the San Inez Valley to believe it. Um, you know, just to, just to dork out for a, a second, you know, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with Santa Barbara County, you know, if we look out of our house or if you're in downtown Santa Barbara, you're looking south on the ocean, right? And coming from Kansas City, I kind of had a vision of, of California being like Chile, like just kind of straight up north and south. And what happens is when you get down to Santa Barbara County, actually, it goes east-west. It juts. Um, and what happened was one of the plates during plate tectonics when, when the San Andreas Fault basically subducted and, you know, all the, the ocean plate was subducting under, a little piece of continental plate twisted in the mix. And as our continental plate was kind of shifting up towards Alaska, we twisted this tiny little morsel of land. And it twisted. It, it went around 90 degrees. And so instead of having these north-south mountain ranges like you see in the rest of California, like the Sierras, you suddenly have this bizarro transverse maritime throat for the less romantic uh, uh, technical term. But basically an east-west grouping of of hills or mountains. And the funny thing about Santa Barbara is if you've ever gone swimming in Santa Barbara proper or Ventura, you can be brave and you can can do it. You can surf without a wetsuit. I mean, it's chilly, but, but you can do it. If you go... Uh, northwest and you're swimming off of Lompoc, A, it's really sharky for surfing, and B, the water's freezing cold because it's the same current coming down from Alaska. It's the same current that affects Napa. It's the same current that affects Santa Cruz. It's the same current affecting Big Sur, et cetera. Um, and basically what Santa Barbara is is this kind of meeting point from this uh, almost this current coming up from Mexico, which is warmer, and this current coming down from Alaska, which is ice cold. So the East-West Mountains, long story short, what they do is they basically act as a block so the wine country, which is just to the north of the mountains running east-west here in Santa Barbara County, doesn't get any influence from the ocean to the south, the warm ocean. It gets all of its influence from the west, and that is cold as ice out there. And so you have this bizarre, unique in this world condition where you're running from 
you know, the, 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 where we are at the hilt, which is these really cool days and really cool nights, you know, we rarely get a day above 80 degrees Fahrenheit because we're nine to 10 miles from the ocean. But as you go inland, you have this giant valley and, you know, incrementally, it's so funny. You start out and it's Chardonnay, it's Pinot and Chardonnay, Pinot, Chardonnay, Pinot. And then all of a sudden there's a little Grenache and Syrah vineyard and then it's Chardonnay, Pinot. And then you kind of enter into this world of Syrah and then you enter into this world of Sauvignon Blanc and you, you keep kind of venturing further. And all of a sudden you find yourself in these giant Cabernet vineyards and Cabernet Franc vineyards. And in some ways, I mean, this sounds a little grandiose and a little extreme, but it's almost like you're going from... Um, in some ways, like the, the top of, of Burgundy, right? And, and you're in, uh, you're in like, I don't know, uh, let's just say Maurice Saint-Denis, whatever it is, and you're just kind of cruising down south. And you get to the Rhone and you kind of keep cruising down south. And you go through Condrieu and you go through Cornas and you go through Hermitage and you keep going south and you find yourself in the southern Rhone. And it's all, all of these things happening within like 30 miles in one tiny little valley. And so Honada, like you were mentioning, is kind of midway through this, this valley. Honada is, you know, 27 miles from the ocean. Uh, and you get these really hot days and really cold nights. So it affected what we planted there. And we'll save that for another day because that's a whole other story. But suffice it to say, a really hot day, a really cold night, that diurnal shift is not favorable for Chardonnay and certainly not for Pinot Noir. Um, so of all the, you know, the Noah's Ark of grapes that we grew, it's basically easy to say at Honada, the only things we don't grow are Pinot and Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And we're fanatics of Pinot and Chardonnay. I mean, when I can afford great Burgundy, I buy it and I drink it. Um, those days are few and far between these days, but you know, back, back when one could, um, uh, you know, buy a, buy a Premier Cru Volnay, I'd, I'd buy it and I'd drink it. Um, you know. That being said, a lot of our inspiration comes from Burgundy, but we had no desire to make Burgundy in California. And I think that's a really important part of our process. You know, we started to buy grapes and, and, and kind of experiment farming a couple of vineyards back in 2004. And it was just experimental. We were trying to find, trying to find the flavors that we wanted for Pinot and Chard out in the Santa Rita Hills, so the far western section of the San Inez Valley. And... You know, we bought fruit from the middle, we bought fruit from the east, we bought fruit from the west, we bought fruit from the north, we bought fruit from the south, aspect, soil, uh, rootstock, clonal selection. And we made a bunch of wines, and, and we made wines of style because we didn't own the vineyards and we weren't really farming them. Um, and, you know, fast forward, we did 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, we got 11, 12, 13, 14, we found a home. And the only thing we'll ever boast or brag about is, is that I think we're exceptional farmers. And I think, you know, we get this amazing gift, you know, from our owner. It's like, you know, I'm buying these properties, you know, I'm kind of bestowing their care to you. You know, you become this kind of a a, a guardian of these properties that have the potential to be just otherworldly. The sites are magical. And when you combine the farming we've been able to do over the last couple of years and our kind of open-minded approach, these vineyards can become really epic. And we found our home after all this diligence. And it was this property that, I'll be honest, is pretty scary. It's called, when we bought it, it's called Rancho Salsipuedes. And Salsipuedes in Spanish, I mean, it literally means like, get the hell out if you can. Wow. And yeah. Oh, it's, it's 4,000 or 3,600 acres of incredibly steep, incredibly windblown, um, pure diatomaceous earth soils. Um, it flash floods in a matter of minutes. It turns into ice, like an ice rink as soon as it gets wet. Um, the roads can collapse. I mean, it's a really lovely place uh, to spend a day if it, you can survive. And I always joke, you know, if, if we got out of the grape industry, we could get into the poison oak and rattlesnake business, and it would be lucrative. The place is nasty. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's the southwest corner. But, you know, my comment that we, we love Burgundy but don't want to make it in the U.S. is true. But there are things we took from Burgundy and the, the Burgundies that we love and the Chardonnay and Pinot from around the world that we love, you know, the dry rivers from, from New Zealand, the Craigie Range, you know, the, 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 um, uh, some of the old Penfolds, Chardonnays. Remember those old great Etarna Chardonnays? I mean, things we learned from around the world, Chard and Pinot, that we wanted to find. And the Chardonnay for us was 100%. We wanted a site that gave us electricity. The Chardonnays had to be so salient and so shockingly tense this kinetic energy, almost electricity that vibrates. They need acid. 
And in Pino, we were looking for a site that would give us something beyond kind of the sugar and spice and everything nice you can find in a lot of California Pinots. Not to knock them, but to me, I've had a lot of domestic Pinots where you taste them, you drink them, like, oh, that was interesting. And you almost have to ask the waiter, what was it I just drank, right? And, and that's not Pinot. If you ever taste Pinot in the vineyard, that's, that's not Pinot. Pinot, I think, is, is it, can be more, it can be a softer texture. It can be more supple in its, its structure. But it's soulful. And the best Pinots in the world have a hook. They set a hook. You know, something that I like to call a hint of corruption. Pinot has to have a dark side. It has to have, you know, the forest floor, the truffle, the, the black pepper spice that we get at Radiant. It has to have um, Subois, the, 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 uh, the gaminess, the sauvage notes that really make you keep sticking your nose in the glass and say, what was that? And then all of a sudden your bottle's gone. And then your palate is, is, is clamoring for more. That's the true essence of, like, sensual Pinot Noir. Um, and we found a site. I mean, who would have known? We found a site that gave us both. Uh, and Salsi Puedes has now been uh, renamed the Hilt Estate. Uh, the Hilt being our kind of the cap, you know, the, the, the one thing we do is we find these properties and we farm them to the Hilt. We farm them basically, the old adage, to the Hilt of a sword, right? You stab something to the Hilt. We're not violent people, but we do farm the hell out of this property. Uh, and that was kind of our yeah, it sounds like such an interesting site, and it's about 13 unobstructed miles from the ocean. So, like you mentioned, that really cool climate, different soil types, kind of a range of altitudes. Let's get into a little bit about your winemaking style of, you know, transitioning the fruit into the winery and your kind of philosophy on oak and letting the, the fruit shine through um, and you know, what you think about that? I mean, the, the beautiful thing about my positions in this company have been that I've started with a blank slate twice. So a blank slate at Hona and then a blank slate as far as our production history as a company at the Hilt Estate, um, the Saucy Puedes Vineyard, which is broken up into, to Frock and Radiant Vineyards. And, you know, look, I, I get into trouble sometimes, and, and I don't mean to do this. Look, I'm never going to take away from the impact a winemaker has on a wine, right? Like, I know there are natural winemakers in the world who are like, you know, we're not even going to prune the vine. We're just going to let it grow because we don't want to interfere. And I'm sure there's people out there in the world who, like, wait till the grapes fall off the vines so and then have to pick them. Because they don't there, has to be, there has to be some intervention at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but so I'm saying, like, I'm never going to take that position and say, oh, winemaking doesn't matter. It's 100% vineyard. No. Not true. That being said, I have always taken a great deal of pride, as have many of my peers in this region, for sure. And, and maybe our greatest skill as winemakers is, is listening and, and, and watching a vineyard and trying to figure out when it's reaching, you know, uh, the, the kind of the peak of ripeness, um, what the wine, what the vineyard actually tastes like. You know, I, I think as winemakers, there are two ways to approach it, right? I, I think that if you are active in the farming and you're aware of the flavors you're dealing with in the vineyard, you know, it's a lifelong dance, right? It's like a tango. It's super complicated. And I think the greatest winemakers in the world are stay in like one place their entire life. I think that is true winemaking because then you have a, a really close, intimate relationship with one parcel you understand completely. Um, but so we watch, we farm all year, right? And, and, and it's incredibly hands-on and we do a really great job and we take a great deal of pride and loyalty in what we do. Um, and when we decide to pick, right, it's based on any number of factors, right? It's flavor, it's the crunch, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's the, 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 you know, where's the acid level? Is it on the up and up? Is it on the down? What's happening? You know, we pay, pay attention to those things. But when we, we finally make the call and I say, hey, let's pick block four, right? Let's pick the southeast facing block of peas. We pick the fruit in the middle of the night. It comes in, you know, we're at the winery at 4 a.m. And... You know, it's like a knock on the door in theory and you open the door and there's this beautiful marble statue. And you know this statue because you grew this statue. And I, I think as a winemaker, right, you could do two things. You could have like this really fine grained sandpaper in one hand. And then I think in the other hand, you can have this giant chisel and a hammer, right? And, and, and you, can, you can do two things. You can say, 
boy, that's not what we want. I want to make this because I believe in this style of wine and I think this should be this, right? And you take that chisel and hammer, you chip away and you make another beautiful statue that's totally different than the fruit you got from the vineyard, right? And that's great. I love when people do that. I've had some really amazing examples. We take the other route, which is we shave off the, you know, sand off the rough sides, the rough edges. We, we don't ever really radically shift that one. Um, and not to over-romanticize it, but, you know, we've had interns fly in from around the world and be like, you know, we're, we're excited to learn the lessons of the hilt and Honada, and they leave, and they're like, that's it? That sucks. That's it? <laughs> you know? It's like, <laughs> yes. Pick beautiful fruit that you farmed impeccably from vineyard sites with potential and energy and magic. And then be incredibly diligent and pay attention and don't F it up. You know, like there's a sense of you've been given this incredible gift. Now bring it to fruition. And from a winemaking standpoint, just to put it basically, that's really what we do. And, you know, with Chardonnay, it's very simple to do that because with Chardonnay, you, you focus on your pressing. You know, we oxidize the juice. Um, we don't add sulfur usually until March of the following year. So it just sits there and rides you know, and, and is much the wiser for going through that. Um, you Are know, you adding any uh, vitamins or, or things to help enrich the um, things kind of along the way? Or what's your philosophy on that piece? Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, I think, I think we listen. And I don't think we're dogmatic in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And something I'm kind of proud of, you know, you know, people ask if we use native yeast sometimes. You know, sometimes if the, the, the mm -hmm. chemistry is right and the, and the time, time um, and, and the season is right, everything's clean, we're happy. Yeah, we'll let things go native for sure. Other years, yeah, we'll inoculate. Um, you know, if, if the nitrogen is really low in the must, we will add um, some nutrient. But it's pretty rare. We don't usually have to add much to our Chardonnay. And to me, that's the sign of the right grape in the right place. You know, we've... We've made Chardonnays in the past where we've had to sit down at a table and have like a come to Jesus meeting about A, whether the world is ready for a Chardonnay with that much acid, and then B, whether it actually might explode the glass when we put it in there. <laughs> you know, like that's the kind of Chardonnay I want to make, you know, and, and, you know, a kind of place where Pinot Noir sometimes needs stems to buffer that pH, you know, where there's so much acid that, that you know, we're at the right place. We're so marginal and the site is so marginal. Those winds are so strong. That soil is so poor. The Pinot skins are so thick. The Chardonnay Malics are so high. Like all these things, it just seems like a natural spot. You know, who's to say what's going to be grown in California in 100 years? But I feel super confident that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay deserve a serious place at the table in Santa Rita. Mm -hmm. Albeit it's only been 50 years, but you can quote me on that. And for the whole cluster, do you do that on some of the wines and others you don't, as you mentioned, depending on the block or the, you know, where it's being sourced and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're really sensitive to whole cluster. Um, I've always been a little bit skeptical of whole cluster and really young vineyards in California. Mm -hmm. um, we've had better success now that the vineyards are, you know, we're getting into 13, 14, 15 year old vineyards. To me, there's a massive difference um, in this kind of resinous, vinous character. You know, the, the vines seem to regulate, the stems seem to change in a way. The vine's metabolism changes dramatically, like ours does. And it's almost like, you know, they're going through puberty in this odd way. Like when they're really young vines and you get these, these whole cluster wines where the fruit's not dense enough and the tannins seem out of whack and the skewed resin quality. But all of a sudden you get to a point where they're producing these, these incredibly profound grapes, at which point if you need to buffer pH or if you, if you find um, an aromatic complexity you like from the stems, then it's go time. And it's always made at the time next to the distemmer when we can taste the fruit and we can taste the stems at one time. And I'm never going to say a stems taste great. I've heard people say that all the time. Stems always taste disgusting and, and bitter. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, right. I mean, they taste like chewing on a stem, like no one wants to do that. But there are times when they are more compelling. I will put it that way. Compelling is the term. Um, but again, there, there's, we're not dogmatic. And there have been years where we've used zero percent across the vintage. And there are years where we've used 10. There are years where we've used 30 percent. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, it, it, it's an ongoing conversation, um, an ongoing dance between us and the vineyard, and it'll take a lifetime to figure it out. And then hopefully someone else will step in with energy and take our studies and, and take them further. Yeah, and you mentioned the picking decision. I've heard from 
quite a few winemakers that that's kind of the number one decision that they have to make um, among, of course, many other decisions, but kind of the most important. Would you agree with that? And then what you mentioned a few things that you're looking for as far as taste and crunch and kind of feel. And a lot of it, I know, is just experience of over the many years of working so many vineyards and crushing so many grapes over the years. But are you using special tools or I've heard some winemakers where they say, no, I'm old school. You know, I'm, I'm kind of just going by taste and flavor. Um, and then I've heard from yet others where they have, you know, they're relying on their vineyard team to really tell them, okay, give them a nod, especially if they're consulting or something and they have a lot of different projects going. So I know that's kind of a, that's kind of a big topic, but you know, what's your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, it, it, look, it's, it's a huge part of the process. Um, I mean, I would, I would say just to be uh, contrary, and I think the most important decision you make is the site you plant and then the, the rootstock and scion relationship you choose, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the clone. But, but uh, you know, not take away from the pick. The pick is massive. And I think there's a number of aspects that come into play, right? Um, there are blocks that, yeah, crunch, like the, the flavor, you know, I never pick bitter fruit, Um that to me is a big part. I would never pick a red grape if the tannins are still bitter, um, if there's still an astringent uh, quality, attenuated quality to any part of the grape, I'm not going to pick it. As soon as that starts to go away, I get real serious about it. And what I like to do is pick an entire spectrum. I got that from Doug and AB down at Craigie Ranch. You know, I kind of treat all the grapes the same way, whether it be Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Noir. Since we have this blessing to own our own vineyards, right, which is pretty rare, like we, we own and farm our own vineyards, they're all estate. Um, I'll pick Pinot across the whole range. So there are blocks I pick really early where if you were to, t- if I were to talk to you about where well, I'm looking for flavor, I'm looking for, you know, readily extractable color in the skins, which to me is kind of a sign that the red grapes are ready to go when you chew them and all of a sudden you get red saliva in your mouth, right? That, that to me is a stage of phenolic development that's a really good sign. And usually a sign that you're okay to go ahead and pick. And so I'll start picking really early, pick things at very low sugars. And I'll pick the entire gamut, the entire spectrum, right? And, and our Pinot vintage is really long because we'll start picking in August and we'll pick all the way into mid to late October sometimes. And by the end, you're picking Pinot that's radically different, right? It might be, it might be you know, potential alcohol of 14, um, 14, 2, 14, 3, something like that, where the first stuff you're picking is like 12, 12 and a half, right? Um, I do that for a number of reasons, mainly for complexity in blending, because I approach Pinot Noir as a grape that can be blended to make a complete whole, because at the end of the day, grape and wine really is about pleasure, right? <laughs> so it has to be something that's interesting, but also something that's quite delicious. Um, you know, uh, PHTA, we watch all these things. I mean, we, we need to be diligent. I'm not going to pick fruit and be like, oh, shit, it was actually like 10% alcohol and like, you know, pH of 2.9, but I sure thought it tasted good. That would be stupid because you would have made a terrible waste of beautiful fruit. Um, there is some flavor decision. There is some some kind of gut decision. A lot of it, too, in our case, is a wonderful management of time and risk management because we have a lot of fruit to bring in. And it's kind of this uneasy gambling. You know, it's like an uneasy card game you're playing with Mother Nature, right? You're like, oh, do I fold? You know, do I ask for another hand? Like, we're getting deep into October. It's going to start to rain. And Pinot, as we all know, does not really like late harvest rain. Um, and so for me, I need to hedge my bets to make sure that we're being diligent and we're not going to get caught with fruit just hanging all over our vineyard because we were we were being ignorant and we weren't really paying attention to Mother Nature. It's like turning your back to a wave on the beach, right? <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you do that once, you never do that again. So for us, it's a lot of different parts. A lot of it is is there's some science. There's a lot of, of, of kind of gut feel. Um, and then there's some schedule management that I think is really important that people need to think about. Yeah, I think that gives the listeners some inside baseball that's uh, really interesting for people who kind of want to know the inside scoop on the picking decision. Um, all that stuff is, is super interesting for the wine nerds out there and, and even people just getting into wine who are who are you know, learning about picking and all these different things in oak. So um, let's get into the wines here. So first the estate, um, I've tried the Pinot and the Chard here. Of course you have a sparkling too. Um, let's start with the Chardonnay um, and uh, talk about some of the specs here and, and this flagship wine. 
You know, absolutely. You know, I, I think we're, we're pretty funny in the sense that we bought these vineyards, right? We bought Radiant and Bent Rock in 2014, right? And there were some exceptional mm-hmm. producers who have been making exceptional single vineyard wines since like 09, maybe. I think is when they started. You know, Dragonette's made some stunning wines. And, and um, uh, who else? Sandy made some really stunning wines. And uh, Justin Willett over at Tyler made some really stunning, epically good wines. Ken Brown, Brian Babcock, before we even bought the property. And we bought the property, and as owners, we kind of like I, I was a big part of saying I, I don't want to bottle single vineyard wines off these vineyards. And people thought we were kind of crazy, right? Like you own them, make single vineyard wines. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the question was always a little bit different. It was, it was, you know, what, what does it, what does a single vineyard wine from a relatively unknown vineyard, uh, very young vineyard, offer the consumer? What does it offer? Like who, who does it benefit? Because again, wine needs to be, and those wines I mentioned are beautiful, epic you know, wonderful wines by, by legendary producers. But for me personally, it was a really funny conversation and thought process of like, why would you, you know, we're just starting with these vineyards. So we're just going to suddenly after one year be like, this is what this whole vineyard tastes like. And the consumers be like, Oh yeah, radian. That's right. I've had, well, I've actually never had that. Like to me, it was a question of waiting for a couple of points, right? It was a question of waiting for typicity and specificity. Whereas my sniff test was, the team and I, our, our amazing winemaking team, Drew Pickering and and you know ben and, and 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 Carrie and Nicholas and Jose, you know, we have to sit down and we have to say, twenty wines in front of us. We all have to be able to say Bent Rock, Radiant, Radiant, Bent Rock, Bent Rock, Bent Rock, Radiant, Radiant, Bent Rock. Right? Specificity. They're unique in their own ways. They're identifiable. But for me, that's one part, right? And we did that in fourteen. We did that in fifteen. We did that in sixteen. To me, the most important part was the next part of the sift test, which is. Are they delicious on their own and complete? Because Pinot has this following where people want things to speak of place. But for me, speaking of place cannot be independent of fabulous, delicious wine, right? It has to be a part of it. <laughs> it can't have like, ooh, that's really interesting. I'll never buy that again. But isn't that interesting to see? It's not really why we make Pinot Noir. We want Pinot Noir where people say, wow, that's really complex and wonderful, but it's balanced and complete. So it didn't do that in 14, 15, or 16. It finally did that in 17, where we started making single vineyard wines. But the reason I'm telling that story is that, for me, the joy of our vineyard, the crux of our production still, are these estate wines, which are, as the name says, they're grapes that we've grown on our properties. But they leave us all of this room to, to, to create balance. And coming from a Bordeaux background, that's heaven on earth for me, and that's right in my, my zone, where we can take, for example, with Chardonnay, Radiant is right on that ocean. It's it's diatomaceous earth. Those grapes are miserable creatures. Like they're teeny tiny clusters are small. That wine can be pH two nine six and twelve grams of acid. You know that wine can 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 punch you in the face. Um, you know, and and then I take uh, Bent Rock, which is more protected. It's a lower elevation. It's to the east of of Radian, and there the soils are more profound. Um, the vines can set roots deeper. The, the grapes tend to be a little bit more um, ripe, uh, a little bit softer. The wine's more generous. And for me, the beauty of the state is then that I can take the yin and the yang of Bent Rock and Radiant and put them together. And they happen to play famously together, as far as I'm concerned. So we can also do the single vineyards, but the estate is all based on that, that relationship. And, you know, we usually do about a third new French oak, a third neutral, and a third stainless steel. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really taste like any of them, right? It tastes like a, a, a fabulous textured, structured Chardonnay. Um, and just the one last thing I'll say about Chardonnay, um, you know, when I started here in 2004, if you would ask me as a 25-year-old, name 100 grapes you want to work with the rest of your life, Chardonnay might have been in the top 100 it might have been like 96 or 97 behind a bunch of obscure Russian varieties. You know, it, it wasn't something I was interested in. And now there's nothing even close to it. It's number one by a mile. It's the most fascinating grape I've found. Yeah. And you mentioned the third, third, third. That's one thing that jumped out of, at me on the tech sheet. Um, also clocking in around 13% alcohol. Um, to me, that, that was really telling. Sometimes I think about kind of the Parker chardonnays the big buttery a lot of oak um you know there's a couple names i can think of in napa who kind of famous for it but i won't mention um and then sometimes you think about different styles but when you look at this chardonnay and tasting it it's it has that incredible balance and sometimes 
when I talk to winemakers or people in the industry and obviously the in pursuit of balance mm -hmm. balance it's it's a tough term maybe it's overused but sometimes it is something to go back to where you know you for wine drinkers they do want that balance of, of fruit acid and kind of all that magic to come together um, yeah just touch briefly on the on the philosophy beside between splitting up the third 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 and then um, kind of that alcohol you're targeting there in the Chardonnay. Sure. You know, a third, a third, a third is something that we've been doing with our, our Sauvignon Blanc from Honada for years. And, you know, it's not always exactly that, but we always shoot to bring all three of those in. And, you know, if you really dig into it, you know, we choose when every lot comes in, we're, we're really um, focused on um, the aging vessel for sure. And certain lots are really like the really taut, mean, lean, green, laser-like, <laughs> I mean, the ones that really punch you in the face with acid, come in sub three pH and over 10 grams of acid. You know, I found that you actually put those in a new oak because you want to stretch them out. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that comes in a little bit, and you, and you try to get them through ML if you can, to stretch out, get some malolactic, where the bigger, fatter, richer wines, we'll put a lot into stainless, we'll put some in a new oak, but we'll also try to find a way to keep them sharp and pointed. So a lot of times they won't go through ML. And for me, a lot of the balance we find is in California is between malic acid and tartaric acid because we have a great deal of malic acid where we are. And we put a lot of our wines through ML, through malolactic fermentation for that, that creamy texture and, and, and kind of the, the lactic, right? But, but for us, that balance between maintaining some of that green apple acid of malic, you know, to actually extend the feeling of the tartaric acid on the center of your tongue. Our malic tends to affect the size of your mouth. And to me, like I talk about electricity, that's what that balance is. Because fruit, we'll never struggle for fruit, ever. Shame on us if we ever struggle for fruit density in California. I mean, come on. That, that's the one thing we have for days. Um, we have something that I, you know, we all call refrigerated sunshine in the glass. And it has a ton of fruit, but it has so much acid that it keeps it lively, keeps it buoyed, buoyant, and vibrant. Um, and the alcohol, I'll be honest, isn't something that... I'm not a firm believer in, in alcohol as an overriding quality or defining entity of wine. Like it can, for sure. Like if you push the envelope and you get into some dumb, like, you know, we've, we've finished some wines just as experiments at like 1740 just to see what happens. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say those are necessarily balanced. There's a meal for every wine and a wine for every meal. But, you know, alcohol for me is just another part of a long list of, of entities that can define a wine. Uh, characteristics. And, you know, for us, the, the alcohol of our region and our, our vineyards specifically is, is, again, it's what we get. You know, we don't really get sugars above 22 in our vineyard and our parcels, the way we farm. That's kind of where we like to see it. That's when we start to see an acid level go down slightly. Um, and that's when we bring it in. And so that's kind of where it ended up. We, we you know, we, again, make wines at 11.8 all the way to 14.2, somewhere in there. So we don't ever really make high booze, you know, high octane Chardonnays, but, you know, just the nature of the beast gives us about anywhere from 12, nine to 13, six on average. And for me, that's a pleasant wine that you can drink the entire bottle and, you know, feel okay the next day. Um, wake up and do some jumping jacks and hit the road, you know? Yeah. And what I love about these wines is very food friendly. Like you mentioned there, of course, there's a meal for every wine, as you mentioned, a wine for every meal. I love that line. But with these wines, very food friendly. And I personally love pairing wine with food as so many millions of people do. And um, on the corollary, though, this is the type of wine you can just enjoy without food, too, because it has enough fruit and it's still balanced enough to where you get that zing, that electricity, as you mentioned, um, and you can kind of enjoy it on its own, too. Uh, so let's go into the Pinot Noir. Um, this one, you also break down on the tech sheet, the different uh, clones, which is super interesting. Um, and then the split between the, the new and then the neutral French oak. Right. Yeah, we, we've never found a, you know, I have nothing against New Oak, you know, and some of the great houses in Burgundy actually use 100% New Oak on their Chardonnay, right? And mm -hmm. I think people need to realize that. Like a lot of those amazing houses, people scramble to pay thousands of dollars to grab a bottle, it's 100% New Oak. Um, so the Oak conversation is really difficult. Um, that being said, I've tried for years to find cooperages that work with our specific uh, Hilta State Pinots, and I haven't found them. 
So based on that, you know, our Pinot tends to be between 8 and 12% new French oak. The rest is neutral. And, you know, clonal selection-wise is really funny. We do have a couple of heritage clones, which is, you know, kind of all the hot, trendy topic, right? But most of our vineyard is planted to Dijon, you know, boring old Dijon, you know, mm-hmm. 113, 114, 115, 667, 777, 828. And it's funny, you know, when I moved in uh, in 14 and we took over, I was still a little idealistic. I'm like, oh, man, who wants all these old clones? They're not even old clones, it's these boring clones, right? And there's a, there's a big misunderstanding in the world of what the Dijon clones really do well. And for me, it's become very clear. You put the Dijon clones in to get an acceptable, viable yield in sites where it would otherwise be impossible to farm. And so we grow these otherwise, like, could be potentially very large yielding clones. But because of where we are, we get, like, a ton a quarter, like, to two and a half tons an acre most years, right? Where if we had Calera, we had Swan, we had... You name it, you know, you name the heritage clone of the day, we'd be lucky to get a quarter ton an acre and we'd be out of business. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we end up with these remarkably concentrated examples of Dijon clones and they're fantastic. But it was funny. It took, it took me being open-minded and, and being willing to, you know, accept um, um, some things that I, I just didn't believe in the beginning. And it's been amazing. They don't act like what people think Dijon clones should act like. They act like these just I mean, dark, structural, uh, structurally intense, powerful, yet tightly coiled wines. And I would say at the end of the day, our wine, one of the words I would use to describe our wine is it's, it's a structured pinot. That pinot has tannins. Um, and, and that is from the incredibly thick skins from the wind of, of <laughs> acting on the, you know, the Dijon clones at our property. And we've experimented with like southeast facing protected sections of the vineyard with planting Calera and Swan and the Martini clone and Mount Eden. And, you know, and we've had terrific luck with that, but they're different. Um, and I oftentimes prefer what we're seeing from really stressed out Dijon clones. Yeah. And I'm looking at the tech sheet here and the flavors. Um, and also was just trying the wine early, earlier before this dried sage, rosemary, menthol, edelberry, some really interesting flavors, black tea, uh, you know, also with the red berries, blood orange, clove. Um, also, of course, Galoni and Donick are giving these wines, you know, strong marks. Uh, people can look look that stuff up. is always interesting just to kind of see what critics or, or other people are saying about it. Look, kind of, I like to do it just to kind of compare what my tastes and to and then you know looking at other notes of what other people are saying because sometimes it actually helps me improve my tasting. Sometimes I'll pick up a taste and I, I can't quite put my finger on it, and then I'll read something and I'll say, oh yeah, that's that's kind of what it is. So. For that reason, among others, and I know collectors uh, are obviously looking for those type of things too. It's it's interesting to uh, to look at. So um, let's touch on a couple of your tips or philosophy. You mentioned tannins, so the ageability of these wines, the type of temperature you like to open them at, those type of things. Uh, sometimes that can actually go a really long way when enjoying the wine is kind of getting a couple of those things right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, the more I drink uh, the wines we produce off that property, um, a couple of things come to light. You know, I, I've had some remarkable like Stony Ridge. We've had some really crazy old Ridge Chardonnays. We've had some, you know, some really wild old Chardonnays from California, some Babcocks from the 80s and 90s that are still just stunning. But for the most part, I find that I prefer to drink California Chardonnay and Pinot for that matter within 10 years of release. Mm-hmm. I find so much joy in the vibrancy, right? Um, will they go mushroom, secondary, tertiary, be stunning in 20, 30 years? Yeah, for sure. Look at Rick Longoria's Faciega, right? Like those wines are, are crazy at, at 15, 20 years. Uh, some of Jim Clendenin's wines, you know, um, they're out there. But um, I think that for us, what we're seeing so far is Chardonnay at about age 7 to 10 is fascinating. Just fascinating. Um, and, you know, I think the Pinots in that same range are, are wonderful. I'm look, it's impossible to get temperature right all the time. Uh, I'm just such a huge fanatic of just the adage of with a red, take it out of wherever you're storing it and put it in the fridge for 30 plus minutes before you drink it. 
always. And with, with whites, if they're in the fridge, take them out 30 minutes before you drink them. And when we can get into specific temperatures, but for me, that always does the trick. Even if they're stored not ideally, you know, 30, 45 minutes somewhere in there in a fridge with, with, a, with a, a red, we'll, we'll, we'll freshen it up. I prefer reds on the chilled side. I prefer whites slightly warmer than most. Um, and that's kind of how I get there. And it's not like I made that up. Everyone talks about that. And that just seems to be magic. It works. Yeah, no, great. That's, that's, I think that's a really good tip for people and a kind of a nice heuristic uh, for people to follow at home. So lastly, Matt, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, really appreciate it. A couple of quick last lightning round questions. Uh, you've talked about your love of music. I've heard you on a couple other uh, podcasts and webinars and things. So what, what do you like, uh, you know, playing in the winery or I don't know, what are some of the tunes on your Spotify lately that you've been jamming to? Oh, geez. I mean, we, we cover it all. Um, what have I been listening to recently? One of our, our main goat, uh, our, our big ones has always been, uh, like Jerry Jeff Walker. You know, there's, there's always a time to have some, some Jerry Jeff, some, some outlaw country. Um, I've been listening to a lot of like Jimmy Smith root down is an album that we put on almost daily right now. I love kind of late Jimmy Smith. Um, Let's see what else we've really been rocking out to. I love Los Lobos. I'm a Grateful Dead guy. Classical music follows me everywhere I go. I'm a diehard Wilco guy. Um, I'm a diehard, uh, oh, come on, this is crazy. Uncle Tupelo. Okay. Uh, nice. Old REM. Um, trying to think of a lot of Nico Case. It's really funny. So, so we had this, this freedom of, of play with our Spotify or Sonos at the winery. We have this really wonderful new facility out in Lompoc. Uh, and we had these interns come over from all over the world. We have, you know, Slovenians, Slovakians. We have these incredible people from all over the world, all backgrounds, all walks of life. I love it. And I always let it go, like, free. Like, in whatever room you're in, isolate yourself on the Spotify and the Sonos and rock out. And I had this one wonderful day where I was walking through the winery, and somebody was downstairs playing, like, Goretzky's Symphony of Sorrowful Songs, right? So there's this... In, in our barrel cellar, which is like devastating. The lighting's amazing, and there's this just devastatingly beautiful uh, um, kind of uh, it's just minimalist classical music, right? And I go up the stairs, and I open the door, and our, our um, Slovakian intern, Christina, is just shredding some diehard Slovakian heavy metal, right? And then I go out by the press, and our buddy uh, Juan Patricio is playing a band called Hate Beak, which I wasn't familiar with at the time, which is a, uh, a like a metal band fronted by a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ooh, maybe I got to put the hammer down. Maybe we have to we have to have a uh, some sort of semblance of of cohesion between the music. But our winery is always music going a hundred percent of the time, twenty four seven. It's such a huge part of winemaking. It keeps you alive. It keeps you fresh. It keeps you happy. And and if you're not happy, you can't make wine. And yeah, you open a whole can of worms. We could go on for days about this, but um, that's kind of in essence what we're doing. I think, well, that's a great story. You mentioned REM. When I was young, I think it was in high school, I got the Monster album, the, the bright orange with the uh, with the kind of the, the bear looking logo on it. I remember that one. So yeah, uh, so uh, let's it's see. Great. Uh, so growing up in KC, how difficult was this last Super Bowl for you? I hate to bring this up, but oh, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> um, I, I didn't actually. It's the first time I've discussed it. Um, oh, we went down and watched it with my brother, and we were silent for about a week. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my brother about why the hell we love these sports teams so much. We're we're sentient, kind of reasonable human beings who do things with intent most often in our lives. Why on earth do we act like? I mean, I have an eight-year-old son. And he was 20 times more mature about the loss than I was. How pathetic is that? Um, <laughs> it hurt. Yeah. But I will say this. We won last year. And I was actually on a flight to France at the time. And I embarrassed and terrified everybody on the plane, including myself, in my celebration as Lufthansa was kind enough to show it. Um, but it felt good knowing. As a, as, a, as a fan of a loser team, I have one in pocket, right? I have former glory that I can watch. This sounds so pathetic, by the way, but it's true. If anyone who's listening is a fan of a loser sports team, a loser sports franchise city, I have a 2015 Royals World Series and a 2020 Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl. I'm good to go for another 30 years. 
Come yeah, later, I was going to say you had the, the Royals and the Chiefs, so you, you know you can't go wrong with that now that no, you... No, I'm, I'm ahead of I'm able to sit up and take nourishment. I have football teams that have won the last 10 years. I feel good. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for asking. It was a bright sunny day before. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, you can rest easy. I remember when Andy Reid was with the Eagles for so many years and he, he couldn't win, and then he came to uh, KC, and then you know magic happened. So sometimes... You know, you change things up and good things happen sometimes. So um, so lastly, when you're not drinking wine, what are you drinking? I've, I've seen you drinking beer and a couple other, you know, webcasts and things before. But what are you drinking these days when you're not drinking wine? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I do love beer. And I'm really funny. I think in this day and age where everybody wants these heavily hopped, crazy 9% alcohol silliness, you know, I live in sunny Santa Barbara, man. Give me a Tecate and a can. I'm a happy man. Uh, that's all I want in life. Um, and the other thing I love is a Manhattan. I'm a, I'm a sucker for a simple Manhattan, um, more white vermouth than red, but, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sucker. And that's a weekly, uh, it depends on, on the week, but either nightly or a weekly partake. Um, that's, that's my drink of, of choice when it's somewhat chilly in Santa Barbara. Well, Matt, I think that's, this is a perfect place to end it. We're going to link the website here in the show notes, thehiltestate.com, so people can go on, get on the mailing list, try, you know, get some of these wines, get them shipped to you, and maybe even revisit the uh, podcast here while you're sipping on some uh, Chardonnay or Pinot. And um, Matt, we really appreciate having you come on. Hey, it's such a pleasure to talk and 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 just kind of chat wine. And you know, as soon as this mayhem is over and the pandemic eases up, whenever that might be, we sure would love to see everybody out in our facility out here in Lompoc. It's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be a beautiful place, and we'll celebrate and maybe even drink a whole barrel of wine together when you get out here. Yeah, I've seen some photos, and I can't wait to get there myself. Just an amazing facility. So people could, you know, be sure to look up those photos and. Go to the website and check it out uh, when when the smoke clears from COVID, hopefully soon. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.